John Durham-Peters, who I'll introduce in a moment, but I just want to let you, everyone know this is a communications PhD student and some of my undergraduates. And I'm reading this book, uh, which is a, a marvelous piece of work in every sense of the word. I was really struck by the discussion of the happy summary in the period between 1920 and 1945, because that is the inspiration for the contemporary civilization course that I'm teaching in, and for the whole world civil, Western civilization project, which is not um, not featured in this book, but of course you can't do everything. I'm so admiring of this book and of this project. I sadly did not know. Um, I, I think I might have met Ken Camille once or twice. Um, Ken Camille was a Neil Harris student from University of Chicago. Uh, he won the Alan Nevins Prize for his book, Democratic Eloquence. So in Kurt Vonnegut's Grand Falloon, that links him with our PhD program, since I also won the Nevins Prize, as did Andy Tucker in different years. They were trying to sponsor that kind of work, which considered to be extraordinarily unfashionable when we were writing it. Um, now on, uh, and of course, he tragically passed away of an undetected uh, a brain tumor, a, a huge loss. His essay on communications and cynicism in the 1940s is a classic, and I've often taught his first book, uh, Democratic uh, Eloquence. Uh, John Durham-Peters is, is no stranger uh, to this group. I think it's fair to say he's the most eminent, if not one of the most eminent communication scholars in the world working at this moment. Uh, he got his PhD from Stanford in communication theory. Before that, an English major. I was fascinated to see that at Brigham Young. So we have come uh, full circle. Uh, Guggenheim, a winner, Center for Advanced Study, Oslo, Norway, teaches media history and theory. The books that are most important uh, for our a student, well, every one of his books is important for our students. He's the author of Speaking into the Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, which is often taught uh, in the Pro Seminar in Columbia, Courting into the Abyss, Free Speech in the Liberal Tradition, a book whose significance is becoming increasingly important as we struggle today with the uh, controversies over the limits of free speech in our, our internet information-saturated era, and marvelous clouds toward a philosophy of elemental media, which I think it's fair to say has something to do with your long-standing interest in the German media theorist Kittler and with the continental tradition of media theory. And most recently, his co-authored book, uh, Promiscuous Knowledge, I'm working on a media history of weather, and he's advised or co-advised over three dozen doctoral dissertations. And I encourage you all to take a look at Professor uh, Peter's uh, CV, because those students are listed. They uh, worked under him, completed their PhDs, and now have academic positions, teaching in places like Beloit College, the Beijing Language and Culture University, Babson College, Fordham, Peking University, uh, and the University of uh, Colorado, and so on. And so this is, is the great honor and privilege to introduce John Durham Peters, who I do call and consider a friend. Um, and I hope we can have future opportunities to um, to uh, to interact with our uh, PhD uh, program. Uh, and I'll turn it over to you, Tessa. Thank you so much. Um, yes, Professor Peters, we are so grateful for you taking the time out of your day, and thank you for joining us. Um, per our earlier emails, I wasn't sure if you wanted to begin with um, just a brief talk or if you wanted to dive right into questions. Um, we have some prepared, so just let us know what you would prefer. 
Great. Um, well, first, I, I want to thank you all for coming on um, on a Saturday morning and thank Richard for such a generous, um, warm introduction. You are in, indeed um, a friend and it's so flattering. You've you've made my day. So thank, thank you for that. This this book was a I mean, the process of writing it was a kind of roller coaster of despair and occasional elation. And it's a minor miracle that it even existed. Obviously, it's it's a kind of work of mourning. And I think of the book as really two books in one. Part of it is is a history of image and information, trying to um, do what, um, um, what Ken started, to finish what Ken started. The other is a kind of meta book of exploring the questions which I've been obsessed with forever about, you know, how does a text mean once it's separated from the author who produced it or how do, how do how do the living and the dead interact or what does it mean to author at um at all which are obviously very fundamental questions for uh thinking about communication um and and media and so um i mean i i guess that's one introductory thing except I want to tell a story about the word unpretentious, which we were talking about <laughs> at the uh, very, very beginning. I spent a year in Finland, in, in Helsinki. And during this year, my wife and I were invited to go to France to uh, give a talk at uh, Montpellier. And we were having dinner with some French colleagues there. And they, were, you know, none of them had been to Finland. And they said, well, what's life like in Finland? How do you like it? And I said, well, we enjoy it. We, we like the unpretentiousness. And we were speaking English. And the French colleagues looked at each other. And they kind of started this little conversation. And after a few seconds, they said, you know, you can't say that in French. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, little joke, if you know something about French culture. Anyway, um, it's one thing that... If, if I can screen share, I think that means making me co-host too, that I just wanted to show you one thing which might be interesting that I don't know if anyone has looked at, but on it's a permanent DOI on the University of Iowa website. You can actually look up the original documents, which uh, Ken Camille left um, upon which this, uh, this, this book is based. And it, it, it's not really... Um, essential that I share it with you, but it's just kind of interesting to see the kind of thigh bones out of which the whole dinosaur model was made. I mean, that's that's kind of the um, metaphor that I always thought of is so you, you know you have a little fragment of bone and then the the natural history artist turn it into um, a full dinosaur. Like you know, I can't figure out what percent of the words I actually produced in this book, but it's probably eighty to ninety, even though. Most of the backbone, the vision, the vertebrae. I see. I'm not co-host yet. That's fine. So, if if I get made co-host, I'll share it with you. But it, it's not urgent. Um, I I think I'd also just one other thing. I think I agree with with You're co-host now. I am co-host now. Sorry, that was my problem. Yeah. Let's see if I can do this. Um, that's uh, a problem. I've got way too many things open. I just need to find where where I put it. Oh, good grief. I've got like 60 things open here. Um, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this another way. Sorry, let me mess with this. No, I'm not going to do it at all. I'm not going to waste your time. Forget it. Um, the other thing I was just going to say is that um, I think I agree with Richard that, and um, 
this is also Fred Turner's point. He thought chapter three was the strongest of the book. And the, you know, the, the notion of the culture of happy summary, I think is really maybe one of the most uh, robust and interesting uh, contributions because it's so counterintuitive to the standard idea that we have of early 20th century modernity and, and of modernism, um, whether it's quantum physics literature or, or painting or music, that we think of tw- early 20th century culture as exploding um, and you know, propulsive and fragmentary. And Ken's argument, no, it's also a culture of streamlining and of compression and of, and of condensation. And, and, and once you see it, you, you can't unsee it. Yeah. You, when you start looking at Walter Lippmann, at Reader's Digest, um, at Henry Luce, you name it. I mean, there's so many just great examples of you see this, this kind of obsessive urge to compress, to simplify, to streamline, to outline. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's a, that's a kind of great... I mean, I, I was very happy with how chapter three turned out. I've, I personally find like chapter five and six a little bit harder, harder to swallow. And those are the ones which critics, Fred Turner again, Frank Kelletar. I don't know if any of you know Frank or Frank, um, American studies scholar in, in Berlin, who is completely brilliant, written great stuff on television, seriality. If you're interested in like serial cultural production, Frank's the guy to look at, but he just knows everything. And he read this book very carefully and thought that chapter five was just too much of a kind of, you know, high culture downer, you know, a big screed against TV. Whereas Fred thought that chapter six missed really the cybernetic revolution. Yeah. You know, the, the, the real, you know, computational basis. You know, and we, uh, we, can, uh, we can argue about that. And there, I found five and six very hard, hard to write because they're not the ways that I think about media history. But it was a real challenge to try to think um, dialogically with someone who I cared about and whose intellect I respect um, immensely. So that's enough prefatory stuff. I'd love to hear your comments or thoughts or feedback. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, so I don't want to completely monopolize the floor. So I might just start with one of my questions, if that sounds good to everyone. And then everyone else, please feel free to step in with comments or questions. Um, I had a particular question about the concept that you outline in the book on the containers of information and knowledge. And you write so eloquently about how the materials themselves change and the processes change as well. And I was curious if you saw the form of the containers and the role that they play in this overall information ecosystem changing or remaining stagnant, even as the materials themselves change. Yes. Um, it's, you know, when you look, you know, I'm a lover of lists and, you know, whenever I write, there's always a, um, a lot of lists. Um, and, you know, when we try to think about the containers of knowledge, you really get quite the cornucopia. Because, you know, Ken wanted to argue that, you know, that the image is a container of knowledge in the same way that peer review is, in the same way that um, a referee journal is, in the same way that an encyclopedia is, in the same way that an an editor is. Um, You know, they're all gatekeepers. I mean, they're all uh, devices of filtration in one way or another. But... um, I certainly wouldn't want, and I know that Ken wouldn't want to try to strip away the enormously variegated history and, and, and the sort of, you know, radically um, particular quality of different kinds of um, containers, like the French Encyclopédie 
if you read Robert Darnton, isn't even one thing. It's many things. It's pirate editions. Um, you know, sometimes you you get blue pages because people are 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 you know putting in the wrong you know dyed cotton with the uh, uh, material. It's the encyclopedia is different in the Netherlands than it is in France because you can get away with with different kinds of things. I mean, it's so clearly, you know the you know, the encyclopedie, the Enlightenment encyclopedie of uh, Diderot is a great example of, of a container or the genre of an encyclopedia is a great example of a knowledge container all the way up to Wikipedia. But each of those are also very diverse. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that Diderot and Jimmy Wales are up, up to the same kind of project, even if Jimmy Wales would love to claim the kind of lofty lineage for Wikipedia, I mean, there are obviously certain kinds of things which are uh, which are shared, but yeah, I mean, I certainly don't want to erase, you know, the historical uh, variety and and difference. And I'm not sure that the book does a, a really good a good enough job of of, of always doing that. I, mean, I think, like in chapter two, for example, uh, um, about the thick flow of fact. There's this wonderful moment suddenly in the early 1870s. Um, in, in which lots of different figures start putting the brakes. Um, uh, you have Langdell at, at, at Harvard coming up with cases, um, you know, a case book. You have Melville Dewey at, he's actually at Columbia at some point. The reason, actually, did, did we say this in the book? You know that Melville is spelled, spelled weird, M-E-L-V-L. Yes. You had a nice discussion of that, yeah. We, we did, and he wanted to change his last name to D-U-I. Yeah. But Columbia wouldn't let him do it, so he had to stick with a with a Dewey. So there's a <laughs> there's a container of knowledge, Columbia University, exerting <laughs> its its onomastic force upon a cranky figure in the late night. And Comstock, you know, Anthony Comstock. I mean, so I mean, all these people, circa 1871, also when Mendeleev is coming up with with the periodic table, and barbed wire is being used to fence off. Yep. You get the West for settler colonial white people. You know, I mean, it's it's a, a kind of. I mean, I think there are moments in the book in which we can be quite precise about, you know, the urge to produce different kinds of containers a, across different kinds of fields. But I think other times, the book is gestural or atmospheric, and saying that we need a history of knowledge containers rather than saying that we have produced that history in this book. You see the you see the contrast there. I I have a just a quick um you know Lewis Mumford who is a figure was yes. very influential in trying to convince his peers that containers were more important than weapons Absolutely. at the foundations. I just wondered if you and Ken had conversations about that because he is also writing he is a great example of this happy summary summary moment perhaps totally. the most effective and enduring along with the beards yeah yes absolutely so um we we do talk about techniques and civilization in there and in which mumford has some very spiky is that the right word pungent complaints about the deutsches museum for example yeah. that you know it's you know it it overflows its collections overflow whereas it, he um he loves the Chicago Museum, right. which, what's it called now? Help me, Richard. Science and Industry. Science and Industry. That isn't what it was called. Wasn't it the Rosenwald? When, uh, it might have been, yeah. When, 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 yeah. when Mumford is writing. But, you know, Mumford loves it because it's great about um, compression and uh, abbreviation. And 
you know, basically every class I ever teach on media history, I assign an essay by the Australian feminist philosopher Zoe Sophia. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you know this, but it's called Container Technologies. And it's basically Mumford plus plus Heidegger plus um, some psychoanalysis. And she brews this really kind of wonderful, you know, point about thinking how what would the history of technology look like if we took containers as seriously in their supposed passivity and stupidity um, compared with the glory that we like to put upon extender technologies which tend to be masculinist you know power technologies so i mean mumford sets up this contrast um already in techniques and civilization between like um containers utilities versus tools and uh, machines. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, Ken and I did talk about this. It's not, it's not as structural, I would say, in promiscuous knowledge as it is in the marvelous clouds. You know, in the marvelous clouds, the idea of containers is absolutely central because of the interest in ships and books and recording media generally. Tessa? Yeah. Oh, Amel, please. Yeah. Um... I wanted to ask you about um, chapter five and six are a, I feel it's like the chapter five is you're, you're basically explaining how uh, the, uh, the appearance of uh, fake pictures uh, in the 80s and how our visual culture changed. And then chapter six, you talk about the crisis of experts and how mm-hmm. uh, we started believing less and less in expert expert knowledge. And so, um, which is how I, I think is the definition of promiscuous knowledge. You're saying the blurring of formal and informal knowledge together. And so, but at no point at all, you use the phrase fake news. Uh, and I wonder how promiscuous knowledge fits in the news, in the world of fake news or in comparison to that phrase. Uh, great question. I mean, I mean, the simple reason we didn't is because it wasn't really current. Um, it wasn't a current term uh, when we were writing. But I find that term really, really difficult in the same way that I find the term free speech really difficult, right. because it's both a term and a meta term. Um, that is that it's, you know, at first it started out as a description of, you know, n- I mean, of, of news which was falsified you know, uh, with ill intent, but it quickly became a kind of Trumpist meme for saying anything that disagrees with me. Right. And, you know, in the same way that if you look at the history of, of debates about free speech, they always go meta almost instantly. It's a question not of free speech, but about um, what free speech means. I mean, Lenny Bruce or George Carlin getting in trouble, I mean, you know, making law. Um, in commentaries about free speech. I mean, it's so meta and, you know, we end up in, in these weird, weird loops. So I, you know, when I teach, I don't talk about fake news because I just find it, you know, I, 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 I don't have the right gloves or I, I don't have the right specimen probes to kind of, I want to hold this up and say, look at this specimen of contemporary culture. But it, it isn't, you know, I find it hard for people to get the distance that they can actually see it as a term rather than, I, I don't know, how do you, how do you handle that? Or what's your interest in it? Yeah, uh, you. Myself? 
Yeah. Amy or Amy or, how, I don't, or Mel, I don't know. Yeah, how, yeah. Or, well, yeah. Um, well, I, I actually really like the way, the, the, the fact that you didn't mention it or that you didn't call it fake news because all of a sudden the description of what was going on historically in the evolution of how we see images was more nuanced in yeah. a way. And yes, fake news is related to Trump. Uh, I mean, um, I, I discovered this year because I'm on a uh, first year PhD. Uh, Andy Tucker has been uh, looking at fake for, forever. And in the 18th century already, there, were, there was fake news. Yeah. And so there is an evolution sure. of fake news. Yeah. Uh, and so, but yeah. I like that um, description. After, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead, please finish. No, I was just going to say that um, the fact that you didn't you didn't use the the phrase uh, allowed you to maybe stay away from the current meaning of it, and yeah. then yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I mean, it's it's also a, one of those funny phrases because it gives you the illusion that there's such a thing as news which is not story or news which is not construction. I mean, it has a kind of ideological forced to say fake news um yeah because i mean it it reinforces the fantasy that there is something that that's that's purely um objective um out there obviously i'm i'm for standards of high quality journalism and uh and a uh, rigor but you know also read i don't know richard or and if anyone reads this stuff anymore like the ted glass or jim edemus stuff you know the whole thing about the, like the epistemology of investigative journalism which they spend a lot of time thinking about story what does it mean that story is the fundamental unit and you know in in the hands of, of the kind of trumpish distrust of big data and mark andrevitz writes wonderfully um about this about i mean the, the kind of cultural logic a big data is that no story can be trusted because there's always um, another story. And so Trump's going to say that's fake news because it's just a story. Um, when in fact, I think what we want to say as scholars and people who understand news is we want to say, yes, it is a story. Let's make really good stories, which grab onto reality in really rigorous kinds of ways, right? I mean, not to kind of seed that ground, which I think fake news often ends up kind of, tilting tilting the uh, debate in such a way is that those of us who want to stand up for epistemic standards end up always looking stupid you know, we're always on our heels you know if um if fake news becomes the the uh, term that's you know the, right. the debate setting term and just to interject for a moment just to put the idea in the graduate students minds uh one of my one of my favorite essays of yours john is your really penetrating critique of the concept marketplace of ideas. Um, I'll just put that in the heads of the graduate students. It's a brilliant essay. I think it comes out of your book on um, probably courting the abyss. Yes, that's um, right. Um, right. Exactly. That's, these are, these are actor categories and they are very, uh, very troublesome. They, they are yeah. to be avoided in my mm -hmm. view. I couldn't agree more. Tessa. Sure, I don't want to interject if anyone has any other questions. So, Amel, go ahead. I have a kind of a follow-up with what we just talked about, which is the, the reality of pictures or even like texts or even like a news story or investigative piece. Uh, I come from a reporting background, and so 
I know that when we write a story, we try to make it compelling, uh, try to even like sometimes tell it from the perspective of the, of the character, uh, but we're not the character uh, himself or herself. So uh, I was re interested in the idea that nothing is real, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if that was uh, Ken Camille's idea, or is it also, do you also <laughs> agree with this? That's uh, funny, that nothing is real. You know, um, I spent 30 years in a department with a lot of rhetoricians. And, you know, if, if you look at the history of rhetorical theory, um, you know, there's this old slur against rhetoric that it's, a, it's manipulation lies, you know, finding the way to dress up a bad argument in order to us sell. But there's also a tradition of noble rhetoric, of saying that rhetoric is something which leads people to the good which can uh, persuade. I mean, this is Plato and Aristotle both, both understood that. And so, I mean, I don't think that you, you have to be committed to a kind of positivist understanding of reality as, as really there, as really kickable um, in, in order to really believe um, in truth. And in, this is, this is why I'm a kind of philosophical pragmatist. I mean, William James and John Dewey, you know, for Dewey, you know, the measure of truth um, is not so much correspondence with reality. It's the democratic process by which um, access to participation in truth making, because truth and justice um, are not um, separable. And, you know, this is a very fundamental idea, of course, to, you know, you know the public journalism movement. I mean, Jay Rosen will, you know, will talk about, you know, stuff like this or or, you know, James doesn't think that there's ultimate truth, but he also believes in science and, and that we can know a lot. And I mean, that's very much um, my conviction is that, you know, there may not I mean reality is fluid and particular and political and and spongy. And sometimes it's very hard and sometimes brutal. But um, we just we're yeah, our job is to do the very best of it that, that we can. That, that doesn't mean that we punt. On expertise, life is short. It takes a long time to learn to understand stuff. So, yeah, Richard, I see you want to jump in. Um, one of the I, I was trying to in reading this book, I was trying to hear Ken's voice and your voice, and there was a discussion of the distinction between positivism and social constructivism. Mm -hmm. uh, before the discussion of fact, it was kind of laying out, and then such and such a store. And I'm not a social constructivist because such and such a store is closed at 2 a.m. Um, yeah. And I heard that as, as Ken. And yeah, I, I might be wrong. But I wonder if you could say something about positivism and its, its influence in the 19th century through Comte and then uh, Ward and then the Academy um, and social constructivism, because I think those are two concepts that are very important to the framing of this argument, but they, are, they haven't come up yet and they may not be self-evident to everyone who's attending. And I'm also curious, I, I'm wrong about that? That was definitely you and not Ken? No, it's definitely Ken. Yeah. yeah so, so, so the beginning of chapter one is one of the purest spots of, yeah. of, of Ken, where he's kind of, you know, the story about positivism as, you know, accumulating bricks into a structure versus social constructivism. Right. Or, um, you know, and he wants, you know, he ends up with a kind of, you know, Bruno Latour position in which, you know, Bruno Latour is a great example of someone who, 
you know, penitently, famously penitently kind of apologized for the idea that his work had led people to be truthy about climate change or about the effects of tobacco or all this kind of stuff. Because, you know, Latour, you know, very clearly will say stuff like, um, you know, Pasteur invented the microbe, but the microbe is nonetheless something which is very real and makes people sick. And we should pasteurize our milk, even if he understands that pasteurization is a, is a political process. It has a lot to do with like French identity and you know, the ways that 19th century science was, um, was, was defined. So, I mean, I, w- I would say that, you know, this 19th century uh, debate is complicated because positivism for a long time was the very basis for academic expertise. Because, you know, with Kant, you know, the idea is very much that, you know, it's possible to know the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, and sociology, sociology being the kind of crowning science that, you know, um, upon this layer, but, um, you know, this layer, this, this great chain of being, Um, but that not everybody can do it. And so you need experts. That's, you know, Lester Frank Ward, you know, Sumner, you know, and, and the institution institutionalization of the social sciences and indeed of journalism schools kind of depends upon the possibility of experts. And so how do you shore up the epistemic status of experts um, without the old positivist narrative? And this is something which Ken was very interested in and and spent, you know, I would say that was a central concern that he was thinking about. Um, You know, in his despairing days, he would just be an anarchist and say, you know, we, um, we, we can't do it. Um, you know, he has a funny essay uh, about literary criticism, which he says, we go to a literary critic for a judgment. We go to a car mechanic to let our car work. You know, so you can ignore the literary critic in a way that you cannot ignore the car mechanic, <laughs> which is a kind of you know, funny, you know, funny contrast, but um, he's right. You know, how do you shore up you know what I mean? And do literary critics necessarily know more than, than anyone else? I mean, I don't know. It's, um, I don't know if that's helpful at all, Richard. Please answer. Please. No, that's, that's very helpful. Um, and um, I, I know that Tessa wants you to talk, and I want to hear about museums and libraries. But before we get there, Ken was very interested, coming with a history background, in how historians in the early 20th century reconfigured their understanding of their subject, that happy summary. This is not a major subject of that chapter, but these, you know, not one brick after another. This is what he would have learned with Neil Harris in graduate school. This was the Hofstetter uh, moment that he's importing European social science and there are all these monographs and they're just all going to go to um, just going to be in Butler and no one's going to read them. If you don't have someone, you know, it's not knowledge does not proceed by one monograph on top of another. And then somebody synthesizes it. It's actually somebody comes up with a new synthesizer and you forget all the old monographs. Right. And I just wonder if you, if you had, and, and had talked about bodies of knowledge, even including those in which you are engaged in evolving in this way, because I hear Neil Harris and of course, I hear his night. There's a lot of wonderful material in this book on Barnum, which Harris wrote a famous book on. Yeah. Um, and, and so I wondered if you could say something about uh, Camille and, and reflections about how to write history. Yeah, so he, 
um, this is something that he thought a lot about. And, and there's a kind of famous anarchist essay. Uh, is it in the Journal of, of American History? Um, I think it's JAH. Um, in the early 90s, it's a kind of roundtable about the future of, of the profession. Do you, do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember that. Um, he's, oh, go on. I'll, right. We can pull it up. We'll pull it up. But anyway, go on. Yeah. You know, he, um, he's, he's in there and, you know, he's partly, you know, on a good day, he says, let a thousand flowers bloom. And he, he kind of celebrates, you know, I think he might even mention like quantitative social history, you know, at the moment say, cool, you know, we can do cool stuff with that. And, you know, grand style, you know, narrative history. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, you know, he's very aware of, of kind of like labor history, women's history, um, you know, he's a good Chicago guy. You know, he understood working people. He, you know, one of his sayings was, is that, you know, when, when a job candidate came in, he always wondered if he, if the candidate could take the secretary, that was the word he used. I know we wouldn't use that word anymore. Take a secretary out to lunch and actually have a conversation. I mean, Ken could talk to anybody and he could learn uh, from anybody. And that kind of democratic eloquence is indeed kind of Ken's modus operandi. And he had no patience for, you know, academic pretense, the idea that we're smarter than, uh, than other people, even though he is smarter than everyone else. Yeah. It, was he a practicing Catholic? Did he come out of a Catholic background? Cause there's a kind oh, of a work. He's, he's definitely, he's not practicing. He's lapsed. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, he went to a Catholic high school. He went to a cat. He, he went to um, what are they called? The brothers. Yeah. Help, help me out here. I read it on his um, page. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say that his his mode of thinking is deeply Catholic. Yeah. And in, in the sense that he understands that the world has fallen, and you know that it's a mess, and we're not going to fix it. Mm-hmm. But. Um, you know, I never really quite figured out because we had some great conversations um, about God and he was really interested and in, in open. But, you know, I don't think that he was a, a believer uh, of, of any kind. And certainly he and Anne, his wife, didn't raise their kids in any kind of uh, Catholicism. Emphasis on the image and, and the criticism of the yeah. word. There's, and also that the kind of the, the priest who works with the working class and understands ordinary people, a trope from 1950s movies. I, I see that in him having lunch with the secretary. And, and Absolutely. Well, you have a late colleague at Columbia who very much embodied that ethos, Jim Carrey. I mean, I don't know. Jim Carrey's spirit still haunts the halls of... And we're trying to keep him alive. We have our PhD students read Carrey, and I talk about Carrey. Yeah. I don't know if he went to mass every day, but he was a devout Catholic. He, he, he was devout. And you know, one of the things that's made him such a spellbinding orator is, is that he said he just learned it from the parish priest in Rhode Island. Right. As, as a kid. Right. You know, I've often thought of sort of Carrie and Ken, you know, in, in similar kinds of ways that, you know, Catholics who got really interested in, in communication. Right. And if, if you think about the mass, you know, the missio, you know, that term is a, is, is a communicative term. I mean, it's obvious in carry, you know, ritual and transmission. I mean, he's riffing on the mass. Right. I mean, the mass itself is a ritual, which is a transmission at the same time. And when Ken reviewed Jim Carrey's book in theory and society, which I think Todd Gitlin may have helped him 
get the uh, uh, review in there. Ken basically says, come on, Jim. It's not ritual or transmission. And, and, And you can kind of see this sort of, you know, internal... Catholic informed intellectual uh, debate about the meaning of communication. I'm glad you're saying this because I hint at my graduate students that there's a theological dimension to the study of communication. Absolutely. And, and most of them think that I'm just crazy. So I'm just, I'm just getting it out there. Back to you, Tessa, more questions. I, I would not say that we think you're crazy. But right. wow. I would object to that. I don't think anyone could think Richard is crazy. You're <laughs> grounded people, energetic and overflowing, but very grounded. <laughs> more questions, Tessa. I know you have some more. Sure. Um, and again, the floor is open, but I did just want to pop back to your biography for a moment and ask if you would be willing to talk a bit more about your next project, the Media History of Weather. Yeah, well, um, the media history of weather is sort of in happy suspension, in in part because of COVID, in part because of family health, in part because of of being um, department chair. Maybe I'm doing this in honor of of Ken. Um, But, you know, the weather book started out very ambitiously to try to think of weather via five media. So weather pictures whether words, so whether pictures would be paintings through data visualization, basically. Um, Whether words would be um, essentially novels, news, novels and news. Um, Whether numbers um, would be, you know, the history of data collection about weather from the British Royal Society up through uh, computer simulation. Whether sounds, um, you know, music, but also also sound. And the last one was going to be weather gods, which is maybe not your exact um, you know, choice of a medium, but you know, tr- trying to take the theology seriously. Why is it that weather is where the gods went to die or where they refuse to die? Because the, you know, the gods are still alive and well in the way that even the most secular people talk about the weather. Um, so I mean that was the um, original ambition for which I um, I got the Guggenheim. But as 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 time goes by and it kind of recedes into the past and the freshness of the writing starts to vanish, I realize that it's probably going to end up really being about pictures and words and numbers, with the with the sounds and deities sort of hovering around in the background. Because I mean, sound is really hard to write about in the same way that deities are really hard to write about. For similar reasons, because they're things which show themselves as they disappear. In sound, you can only hear sound because it's disappearing. This is a kind of classic point from sound studies. It goes back to Hegel. I mean, Hegel articulated it very clearly, but if sound didn't die, we just live in a soup of brown noise. Sounds audibility, intelligibility. I mean, the very being of music depends upon sound's ability to, to vanish. In the same way that you know, deities show up and leave spooky traces or 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 absences you know the empty tomb for christian theology right you know that's that's the proof of of the resurrection so anyway i think you know the the basic argument i'm going on too long but the basic argument is how did modernity decide that weather was banal how did we decide that thinking about the weather writing about the weather, reporting about the weather. I mean, how did we produce the weather as something which was daily or hourly 
and, and utterly banal when in fact it's incredibly dramatic and incredibly interesting. Um, I mean, that's the aesthetic point, but even more when it's politically and ethically and civilizationally absolutely crucial that we learn how to think about the atmosphere in non-banal ways. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this is a kind of genealogy of how did we not understand how to think about climate change. And so the argument basically is saying that the weather is stupid to talk about and that only rubes and, you know, rural types waste their time, you know, with this, with this mere chit chat, that, that, that depreciation of weather sets up the catastrophe that we're dealing with in with, with our climate. That's the argument. Um, it's, it's written, I mean, the chunks and chunks and chunks are written and I just don't know how, how I'm going to, how I'm going to pull it together or when, but, uh, la reine avisera, as they say in the channel islands, the queen will decide. We'll get advice. <laughs> Richard, I see your hand. Yeah. Um, I have some students here who are, we're going to be, uh, doing a unit on Francis Bacon and the scientific revolution. One of the striking claims, my guess is this is Camille, in broad strokes before the 17th century, no one believed in facts. People believed in things. The ancient Greeks had no word for fact, although the Stoics had a conception of facts. Um, Just riff on that. And then I have a question about images in the 1960s. And then I want Tessa to get the chance to talk about libraries and museums. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely Ken and he's resting upon the work of uh, Lorraine Dastin. Right. And I think also like uh, Latour is good on this, like pragmata. Pragmata is the ancient Greek word for, uh, for things. I mean, I can't find a word in like Aristotle that would correspond to fact as a sort of raw nugget of experience or, you know, empirical givenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, I mean, this is, this is something radically new. You know, actually, Bacon is actually really interesting on weather while we're at it. Oh, really? Strange freezing experiments and tries to understand the wind. I mean, Robert Hooke is the one that I'm, I'm, I've worked on more, and Halley, of course. Hooke and Halley, early figures in the Royal Society, who are trying to, you know, figure out how do you, how do you, produce weather networks i mean you, there's no weather without a network so that this is a kind of interesting problem you know how do you know how does modernity deal with scale and with data networks mm-hmm. but anyway so where were we going there is something you had a question about images yeah and then the 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 last this the image emerges first in the italian renaissance just as the 17th century for uh fact and then the last great decade of images is 1960s. And that is, um, uh, that struck me as more you or maybe as much you and Ken, but in just teaching the history of journalism, it is, it is just a, it, it, that was kind of a revelation to me that yes, images had a kind of iconic status. And I'm thinking here of Louis Manan's Free World and of uh, Casey Blake's At the Center that in a very different way, they're talking about the kind of enormous significance invested in uh, certain forms that are perceived to be common and shared. So we've got all all those images from the 60s. I wonder if you could riff a little bit, since you are 
now a professor of film and media studies, um, <laughs> about the image in the last 50 years. Yeah, I mean, this is very much Ken's argument, but I'm totally sold on it. You know, the opening of chapter four, you know, in the 1940s, the image was was huge, yeah. sometimes literally, but also in terms of its capacity to um, unite the uh, culture. And, you know, Ken had no illusions about who is left out. I mean, he, he's not nostalgic for, you know, kind of white bread, you know, happy, happy image making from the 40s and 50s, but he is as a good historian trying to trying to ask how is it that we can actually produce images which everybody saw you know? is the concept exactly exactly i mean how do how, how do you have, have have the part part for the whole and how do people accept that how is it that the NAACP actually likes Norman Rockwell right that was fascinating i, I mean you can't really imagine you know um I mean, you wouldn't expect black theorists, you know, or, you know, critics of, um, you know, racial injustice in the U.S. to think that Norman Rockwell is someone you would turn to as, a, as an artist that you would admire. But, I mean, uh, Romare Bearden, for example, I mean, the NAACP uh, commissioned his work. So, I mean, that's a, you know, it's, it's a kind of, you know, brain mess. But, you know, Ken's argument was, you know, compare Life magazine with People magazine. There's nothing enduring in People magazine. Even the format is smaller. It's passing eye candy. It's paparazzi shots, but nothing there is going to endure the same way that, you know, that Napalm Girl is going to endure or Muhammad Ali is going to endure or, you know, Robert Kennedy dying. I guess I'm kind of stuck in the late 60s, but I mean, we we can all just conjure up, you know, Kent State, you know, a bunch of images circa 68, 69, 70, which everybody knows and we're and, and we're stuck with it's hard to do that the challenger explosion maybe we can do 86 or you know i think we can do moving images of of 911 of course you know of the, right. of the towers and and the plumes but you know the, the total failure of the effort to produce an Iwo Jima style image of the, the firefighter rescue i think is i mean I mean, I wrote that, but Ken Ken figured that out. He said, you know, let's look at how the the complete collapse of this effort in 2001 to make um, an iconic image precisely because of this question about you can't have synecdoche synecdoche anymore. The question is, you know, who should be represented? And and, yeah, go ahead, Richard. So he was going to write a book on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He was, yeah. And that seemed to me, and he wrote an essay on that. Yeah. And that does seem to me, it, it anticipates Samuel Moyne's work on it, but it also has a, it has a somewhat different um, valence because I think of his much deeper historical understanding in how this way of thinking about the world was for a period of time so central. And according to both Menand and uh Casey Blake, it's a reaction to pragmatism. It's a reaction to the interwar opening up of possibilities. And I wondered if he was, if he was, he, he, he does not, he, his interwar period is so fresh and so startling to me and maybe so compelling that did he, did he, did he narrate the story the same way? In other words, going from the pragmatist then to say Pollock or to Declaration of Human Rights or to all those 50s iconic um, American way images i'm just i'm just wondering about it. yeah because i didn't have the opportunity to have all these conversations with him yeah yeah i mean that's um you know who is the um 
he got scooped by Samantha Power. Um, he, he got very interested in, why am I blocking on his name, the inventor of the term genocide, oh. Raphael. Yeah, it's a Jewish attorney. Yeah, I think I'll get it up. Anyway, well, uh, we'll find him in. And Ken did a whole lot of work um, on this. And then Samantha Power, um, what is it, A Problem from Hell came out and, and kind yeah. of. The Falling Man. Yeah, The Falling Man could be iconic, I suppose. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the thing is that, you know, iconic images don't, I mean, this is. I guess Elihu Katz's point that if you want to think about media events after, you know, in the 21st century, there are less often celebrations than catastrophes. Right. Raphael Lemkin. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Julia Sonnevin's um, book on. Um, yeah, that's great. Brother Wallace, very and She's one of our writers. Tessa, I, 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 I'm going to ask you to ask some questions about libraries and museums. I actually, I just got one more quick response to the thing. Of, okay. I mean, Ken's essays on like um, on human rights. He's got this really interesting point about thin culture, and his his analysis of Amnesty International, and the way that Amnesty International embraces the new fluidity with t-shirts and logos and you know lily Juliaraki does wonderful stuff on, on on this work about the sort of you know ironic way that humanitarian image making works via oxfam like you know their, their ironic ad ads about like the no food diet you know let's try the no food diet it's really wonderful you know, it's 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 blisteringly sarcastic and you know it hits you um in the gut but this is a very different style from the sort of grand 1950s, you know, let's unite the world loose style. Right. But what um, Fred Turner writes about that great right. exhibit. Yeah, the, man. man, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tessa, why don't you, uh, I don't know how much more time, John, you're willing to give it, us. But... Yeah, the, the, uh, painter, uh, the painters haven't come yet, so we, we can go a little. Okay. Little... I know, Tessa, you're very interested in 19th century museums and libraries. So there's a lot in here on that late 19th century museums and libraries. Um, and I don't believe I saw a single reference to the phrase Gilded Age, which warmed the cockles of my heart since I've been on a crusade to get rid of that uh, concept for some time. Um, is, is that Twain's invention? Yeah, he, it was in a, I don't want to go on. It was in a, a book, but then it was never used until Mumford and C. Van uh, C. Yeah, picked it up after the First World War, and then Beard picked it up. So it was a it was a literary artifice in order to damn the previous generation. But the previous generation has a very different coloration in this. It was never used at the time. Um, yeah, Tessa. Well, I don't want to take up too much time, but as Richard said, I'm very interested in the late 19th century formation of national museums and libraries in particular. So I, I loved all the portions in this book in particular that touched on that as there were many parts. Um, and two things in particular that I'm interested in are on one hand, kind of the battle to a certain degree between institutions as to who owned portions of the knowledge production process, um, who was in charge of dissemination, who was in charge of creation, kind of the museum versus library battle. And another portion that I've been very interested in, not solely restricted to the United States, of course, is the kind of 19th century debate over whether museums in particular, although to a certain extent libraries should be universal or specialized. Um, and particularly, as you touched on that, that universal element is kind of the encyclopedic idea as well. 
So I, I suppose my one question on that topic is specifically considering the conversation as to whether institutions themselves should be encyclopedic or specialized breakout into smaller subsidiaries. How do you see that as kind of fitting into the overall argument that you crafted in this book? Hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure that I've, um, I've got it, but let me try something which is you know, a, a sideways approach. I don't know if you know the work of Andrew Abbott, who's a sociologist at University of Chicago, who's just brilliant on the sociology of academe. Yeah. And, and, and one of the points which he makes, which totally, I mean, it just bowled me over, um, is that one of the key things in academic life is the disappearance of the departmental library. It used to be that there'd be the psychology library, the sociology library, the economics library. And then, you know, someone, and I don't know the history of this, I can't remember, but but the, maybe some of you know, is that, you know, the benevolent big university library said, no, let's put it all together, which then ends up meaning that it it makes it much harder to deal with information overload. Um but I mean, so that question of sort of universality versus particularity is also a question of of, of the resource base and affinitude and of disciplinary um, identity, you know, uh, within the, within the academic world. Um, you know, the, Ken's point about the, uh, the museum being the, the place of knowledge creation more than the university in the nineteenth century. I mean, that that I found to be a real stunner. Right, someone like a. You know, speaking of Columbia, two great Colombians, Franz Boas, as someone who's is like you know betwixt and uh, between because he's at the American Museum of Natural History and at Columbia, right? And going back and forth until he finally makes the move, very early in the 20th century to Columbia full time. Right. The student Margaret Mead, her platform is the American Museum of Natural History. Right. So, so she's able to use that as her base for, for a. Uh, for knowledge production. I mean, in some ways, she's kind of looking back to an older model, I think, but you you know this stuff better than I do, Tessa, so I'm curious if you have further thoughts about that. A high percentage of all the scientists in the United States who identified as scientists in the first half of the 19th century were working at the Smithsonian. Um, and and then... Under Joseph Henry and people like this. Yeah, that circle. But yeah. the, in, the... So the universities win the museums lose out, but the museums are very centrally engaged in this program of popularizing isn't quite the word for it, but it's maybe this happy summary and making excessive, no longer just filling their, their floors with object after object after object, but trying to explain what it all means. And the diorama, that was a beautiful example of that. Or maybe you don't do much with the planetarium, but that maybe could be put into the same um, project. Yeah. Planetarium is a 1920s thing invented by Zeiss, the lens company in Germany. Walter Benjamin has a great little, a very short little essay about the planetarium as a kind of marker of modernity in which the heavens become something artificial and indoors. It's a great little, little yeah, that would fit in your, I hadn't thought of that, but that would fit in your, um, in your current um, book. It's definitely in there. Yeah. Benjamin and Lukács talking about where did the sky go in modernity? What the happened to the sky? Lamenting the disappearance of the stars is actually something which matters to us. But Tessa, you were going to say something? Oh, no, I, I was just going to agree with all of the points. Um, that period, particularly kind of turn of the century, 
as to what roles kind of struggle over that um, and the contestation over the knowledge production process and how, depending on the discipline and the specialty, as Richard pointed out in the institution itself, there was a back and forth through the beginning of the 20th century as well. I I just think it's an incredibly fascinating period. You know, one thing you just made me think of is, you know, chapter six talks a bit about uh, museum disputes, Smithsonian, you know, the Enola Gay or Robert Mapplethorpe or the Toronto um, Museum, a variety of, you know, of, of the 1990s. But I'm sort of wondering if, if the university isn't getting back into the, into the mix as a kind of public lightning rod for, you know, anxieties, you know, critical race theory, the way that critical race theory is, is this, is this demon for the, uh, the uh, right. You know, I think in the 90s, the university was relative, maybe this isn't right, it was more remote from the kind of, you know, anti, I don't know, I was going to say Republican, that's not really fair, but um, certain kinds of backlash. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm out to lunch, but I mean, this, this question of the museum versus the university as sort of the site of popularization in which the rubber meets the road in which the public can get angry or, or the, there's a kind of political friction, I think it's something interesting to uh, think about in our moment. Here's a way to pick up on Tessa's um, question. Uh, in chapter three, you talk about, and this is, a, this is well known, the invention of the concept of culture, ethnographic concept of culture. Where, and that is, it's very particularistic, but it also then becomes very universalistic. Everybody has a culture. Um, you say ethnography is, is crystallizing. The first and basic ideal is to disentangle the laws and regularities of all cultural phenomena from irrelevance, if I have that right. Um, that's yeah. at least in the notes here. So there's something basic and fundamental to structure what appears to be an empirical flux. And a lot of that did come out of museums. Yeah. So they're just stuck with all this stuff that yeah. largely imperial projects have you know, brought together and now they got to make, you can imagine that happening in Museum of Natural History in New York City. You can imagine it happening in Washington. You can imagine it happening in, in Chicago and in London and in Berlin. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, when I was at the last of the American Museum of Natural History, I, I bought a little history there. And I think they have some astonishing statistic like only 1% of their holdings are ever on display. I mean, I can't remember, you know, how much it is, but almost everything's always in storage. Yep. Which is just, you know, so, so the kind of front room, back room, you know, the, the showroom versus um, lab, you know, the, where the knowledge is produced versus where the knowledge is disseminated becomes, you know, becomes a thing, you know, and in the interwar years. Right. The Met and the New York Historical Society have both tried to respond to that by opening up parts of their museum, basically warehouse style. Yeah. With just lots of stuff completely uncollated or uncurated just it really fits the kind of google search archival moment we're in the sort of archival sprawl that internet culture encourages right you figure it out yeah exactly we've got it also there's almost kind of a it's just wonderment it's just wow all this stuff let's it's just the culture of fact isn't it yeah I mean, with without the democratic faith yeah i mean that's 
that's a sad thing. I mean, that's the thing which I think Ken kind of loved about the 19th century, you know, like Horace Greeley, for example, you know, he's going to lavish detail upon you because he knows you're going to figure it out and make something with it because he trusts you to be a smart democratic citizen. And Barnum was in the same game. This is the New York Crystal Palace exhibition that Greeley wrote about. And then Barnum's museum. You're in on the know, you're going to have fun with it, but it isn't patronizing. No, I mean, most of the fun is showing how you've been duped. Yeah. And that was the thesis of Neil Harris's wonderful book. I mean, sold on on, on that too, that the kind of bringing you into the process of the operational aesthetic. That's the exciting thing. Yeah. Um, Bikini. That was something that I had not really thought a lot about, but that's really striking. That was that Ken too? No, no, it's me. Almost everything in chapter four is me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, my feminist conscience um, got to me with that, but you know it's so explicit. The female body as an atomic bomb. Read it out because the students don't all know this. Yeah, and like you know, bikini. You know the. Uh, swimsuit is actually named after the island which was exploded i mean that, i think i think that's that's a pretty well known and life magazine is trotting out this new model she's called the anatomic bomb um there in you know nevada has beauty contests yeah um you know the miss i forget the miss something bomb so they advertised when you would go to nevada they would advertise you can see a nuclear explosion you know kind of a touristic uh, sideline, yeah. You know, it's funny because I just reading this great essay, which I recommend to you all, it's a kind of memoristic essay by Todd in the Yale Review. My Yale Review just showed up yesterday in which he's talking exactly about that in Nevada. And uh, Siegel, the the guy he's talking about, is is there with all these guys in Stetsons who keep calling it a nuclear device. And he feels so square because he's calling it an atomic bomb, but it's a show to stand there and watch these, these explosions. And I've got, I've got one more question for you on along these lines. Um, I, as, I, as I've said, I very much appreciated that this book is written in the plain style, mm-hmm. that it is accessible. But there was a hint in the background of discussions that the two of you may have had about Heidegger and, I, I, and about how you know, the most important thing about technology is not technological, particularly in the uh, image of the status as a reality, excuse me, the status of the image as reality defining at mid 20th century. And I wonder if you could just explain Heidegger to us in a couple of sentences, because you understand it. And am I right that he was sort of a master spirit behind those chapters? Maybe. I mean, Ken was even more outspoken in his antipathy for Heidegger's obscurantism uh, than I am. What did he call him? A Nazi chub boy. (laughs) I I don't even know what a chub boy is, but Ken was really good with these, with with these insults. But Ken learned a lot from Heidegger, but but was really would not want to give him pride of place. I, I think, you know, Ken being a good feminist and, Americanists would say, how about Suzanne Langer? Right. You know, I mean, s- someone who's less famous, but who's having similar thoughts about the c- condensing power of images, or and- André Bazin, who I find just as interesting as, um, as, as Heidegger. So, I mean, yeah. Heidegger, I, am re- I am reassured. 
Heidegger, I mean, this is like, Heidegger is like the O'Hare airport. You have to pass through him to get anywhere, but it's usually <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> or did did the uh, did the eggplant metaphor make it in there? I don't I don't remember if if we had that. Maybe that's in the marvelous closet. Heidegger is like eggplant that if you just eat him raw, he's toxic. But if you prepare him properly, he can be quite delicious. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, do you have? I've got more questions, but Tessa or Amel or perhaps the undergraduates who have not even uh, had a chance to to read the book would like to say something, Tiani, Sebastian, uh, Sophia, um, any questions about, you could even ask questions about film or questions about media or questions about uh, our own moment, questions about Aristotle and the fact, and we're just moving on to the sophists. <laughs> um, Sebastian has raised his hand. Sebastian, you have the floor. Okay. Um, so yeah, to preface, I've not read your book. I did in fact just order it, but um Basically, I was wondering, like, or you said something interesting the other day, which was or lit or earlier, which was that like Life magazine was sort of constructed to endure, whereas like People magazine wasn't. And so this kind of got me interested um, about like, I guess like institutions that are sort of localized to the internet. So, for example, like publications that are solely online. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's sort of an implicit notion that? basically things created online or on the internet are inherently or are just naturally going to perish basically and do you think that that sort of affects the quality or what you or what you said was the epistemological quality of Mm -hmm. um things published on the internet or just like knowledge on the internet as a whole yeah great question i mean I think the official ideology of digital preservation is that if it's if it's on the internet, it's forever. You know, that's the kind of warning that you give give your friends and say, you know, don't put your drunk pictures up there, right? Because it's forever on the internet. In fact, the internet is full of it's Swiss cheese. It's full of holes, and and you know, archivists face this real problem of how do you do long term digital preservation simply because of Moore's law, you know, Moore's law, which you all know, means that the number of transistors doubles every 18 to 24 months, um, which means that basically, you know, it's, it's a very fast obsolescence. I mean, I still have, have, the, have the floppy disks on which I wrote my dissertation in 1986, but it's really hard to find anything, I mean, any machine that I can view them on. You know, so that, you know, that's that's 35 years. You know, and I think it's quite possible that historians will find the 19th century, you know, historians 500 years from now will find that 19th century much more richly documented than the early 21st century. Because, you know, how the heck are we, I mean, all this sort of online stuff, how do we preserve it? You know, how do we have millennial computing? It's it's a really difficult question. I'm, I'm trying to remember her name, um, Levitt Cohn. What's her first name? Anyway, did this really interesting study of, of of the Cassini probe, which went to Saturn, I believe. It left Houston in 1997, and one of the most important parts of of this team was were, were the legacy computer scientists, because basically, in order to get data off of Saturn or Jupiter, wherever it was 
you had to be communicating with 1997 computers. And it took special experts to figure out how do you be com communicating with 1997 uh, computers. So I'm not sanguine about long-term digital storage uh, whatsoever and, until we figure out, I mean, you can, I mean, you can put so much stuff onto a zip drive and then bury it in a, you know, in a time capsule somewhere. Richard, do you, do you know my colleague, uh, Nick uh, Yablon, his book on uh, the time capsule, also a Neil Harris student. No, I don't. I should, but I don't. It's a really interesting book. And it's on the invention of the, of the time capsule in the 19th century. But yeah. basically, you, you can put this amazing device in there, but, you know, what are they going to do with it in 100 years? Yeah, you know, what kind of expertise? You're going to have to go to NASA, NASA in Houston and say, "Hell, right. legacy computer experts." Yep, the codex is a very uh, flexible medium, and I will put in a word here for the most underappreciated 19th century communication medium, which is the letter. The absolutely, letter. absolutely central, and we don't have letters today. Um, quote: We have not treated these fights. This is in chapter. Um, six, uh, over peer review and the like as culture wars. Such a label assumes they're a battle of the left and right. This mistakes the particular fights, which often are some version of left and right, for the larger cultural pattern. They are about a more pervasive distrust of formal knowledge. It's had a distinguished history, 19th century, lots of distrust of formal knowledge. But since the 70s, it's taken a new form. Experts remain in place. The research continues to be supported by taxpayers, but at key places, outsiders assault and enter into the public representation of truth. These are not the same old political squabbles. They fit a larger context of postmodern paranoia, symptoms of a collapse in the faith, in the division of elite, elite and lay knowledge. So this, as I read this book, and as I read so much American historiography, we've enormously exaggerated the importance of the 1960s and enormously underemphasized the importance of the 1970s. Absolutely. Which is where yeah. all these changes occurred. Mm -hmm. And so much of U.S. history at the secondary school level to this day basically stops in the 1960s. And I can ask my undergraduates that this afternoon. So can you say something about the 1970s and why that is the crucible for our moment and why we've got the 1960s wrong for so long? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's the interim decades that are that are most interesting. And um, my my second son, Ben, Ben, my first son, is a proud grad of the of the Columbia program. My second son is a car fanatic. And one of the things I've noticed is that when you look at 1940s cars and 1970s cars, American cars, it's hard to tell whether they're 60s cars or 80s cars. Because you, and it's hard to tell 40s cars if they're 30s cars or 50s cars because they're they're liminal and ambiguous. So hinge decades have that quality of seeing of being deceptively um, under the radar. I mean, I think David Frum's book on the 1970s is yeah. a really amazing book. Very good. There's a fellow at um, BU also has a book on the 70s. Um, someone pull it up there. He he's the historian at BU. But those are the those would be the two I would turn to. Yeah, you know, like if you if you think about finance capitalism, you think about right. Mitt Romney. If you think about what's happening in capitalism, you think about OPEC. You think about um, Earth Day, you know, dawning of, of 
climate awareness. I mean, clear knowledge of global warming. Um, I mean, so much is I made. Mean, yeah, the, it's the seventies. Ken was Ken was working on a book with I think with Casey Blake, and I. Um, it's actually kind of funny because Casey. No, I'm not going to say anything. Um, it never happened, shall we say? <laughs> but they had a they they had this really interesting plan for a, a book on the seventies as the sort of origin of our moment. Yeah, that is very. I'm still trying to get the. Um, Bruce Schulman is the oh, historian at uh, know him. Yeah, at BU who has who has written on that. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because Casey Blake's book stops the at the center, which just came out, pretty much stops in um, I think it's sixty five, and then when um, Louis Manan's book, The Free World, stops in pretty much in uh, I think it is about the same place, maybe a couple of years later. Vietnam. So I just have, I have many, many more um, questions. I mean, there's a wonderful discussion here of the concept of information. There's a wonderful discussion of, um, well, the importance for historians of large personal libraries, which is a a fascination of mine, which was uh, an inheritance for you from from Ken Meal. Camille, our PhD students are all doing keywords. Kind of the you know that philological exercise. Oh, we've lost you. There you are. No, no, no. I was I was showing you boxes of yet unpacked Ken Camille books. Oh yeah. So oh, here, five we were, that's a history thing that we were taught. We have to accumulate books. You have to have a personal library. You have to have command over a lot of sources. That's and that gives it this book. I think a kind of grounded character. Yeah. Um. Did you write the bits on Daniel Bell? No, Ken did. That's definitely yeah. Ken. Yeah. That was Ken. And the, the concept of information, it's two distinct meanings. Um, that was, I mean, I, I have written um, about that, but um, that was Ken, because I didn't want to kind of bring in all the complexities from my earlier piece. Yeah, there, you say you say very uh, imaginative and, and creative things that are remarkable, that sometimes you felt you were ventriloquizing, but you couldn't. And then sometimes you felt that you were writing what you thought Ken would want to write, which is not what you wanted to write. And then other times you just felt you, you couldn't do that. I mean, there is a, there is almost a, I mean, friendship is the theme of this book, but there is also this kind of speaking into the air quality of it is trying to sustain a friendship, someone who can no longer directly respond. It gives it just, it makes it a remarkable book on so many levels. Yeah. Thank you, Richard, for seeing that, that friendship being this epigraph from Emerson, which is yeah. which you're supposed to kind of say this is a book about friendship. And it's and it's a book about life support. Yeah. Friendship and, is an under underappreciated kind of phenomenon. I mean, I mean writing is can always be torturous, but I think writing with um a dead friend is a way just to up the ante of the writing torture. It's a supposedly fun thing I probably won't do again. Yeah. You do you don't I'm trying to think of collaborations you've had. You mostly are a solo author. Is that fair? Well, I mostly, but you know, I've I've had short short pieces. I mean Ben Peters and I have, have done several things. You know, Ken Camille and I published an article um together, Eric Rothenbuehler and I. Um Anna Sheckman and I have something. Anna, who's um now at Cornell, is gonna get a tenure track job in, in English, but she and I wrote a kind of revisit revisiting of Dewey and Littman and she did a whole lot of really great work oh. in, in the 20s and 30s 
Is that revisiting? I'm sorry, I don't. I go as far as Shudson and the scholar at Muhlenberg on Dewey and Lippmann. Yeah, um, Sukhuri Jansen. Yeah, so we we, we build upon Michael uh, Shudson and uh, Sukhuri Jansen. And this is um, a new, I didn't think there was an appetite for this, but yet another volume on the so-called Dewey-Lippmann debate, which wasn't- I mean, it wasn't a debate. I mean, I know that's, you know, that's what we say. I mean, it's basically, you know, the point of our article is is say, you know, let's zoom out. Let's look at Randolph Bourne. There was a debate. Let's look at Lewis Mumford. There was a, let's look at um, Mankin. Floyd Allport. Yeah. Mankin. Oh, we we missed, well, Mankin's sort of in there. You know, uh, Horkheimer uh, slams Dewey um, a, a little bit. So, you know, we'd, we're we trying to actually find all the people who really did have debates with Dewey and uh, what's at stake. In, um, in David Greenberg's Republic of Spin, he has a very nice, tight uh, argument showing that Lippmann and Dewey are pretty much together following the literature, but the real antagonist is Mencken. And, and that, that Mencken kind of nihilist, this came up in our reading group on... Um, on Thursday, when we were reading a new book on anti-monopoly by Matt Stoller from a very different place, he has decided that Mencken is the arch villain. For in other words, if you want to find an ancestor for the alt-right and you want to find an ancestor for contemporary nihilism and anti-democratic, oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's, it's Mencken. Yeah, uh, and he was wrong about scopes. I mean, you can just you can go on and on about that but that's so that's not the focus here but this came out a couple of years ago we have to i have to get my graduate no, no, i mean i can send you send you the draft i don't know when it's going to come out oh it's it, not out yet okay you make me feel better but yeah so you have you have uh, collaborated yeah at, um, at the article level not at the book level yeah. yeah what what do you think that i mean this is a very imponderable question but we're in the realm of mysticism and theology what would can from wherever Kenny has appreciated most about this book and what would he find most problematic? He, he would find most problematic that I spent my time working on it. He would have said, be free of me, go do your thing. And he would be, he'd, he'd blow a kiss at me across, across the room and say, thanks. Thanks for being a pal. That's wonderful. I mean, it's, um, I knew, I knew that he wouldn't want me to do it, but you know, you know, the uh, dead don't have any say in how we how we treat them. Adam Smith was it was supposed to destroy Hume's papers, and then he didn't. Oh, I, I didn't know about this. I know about Max Brod and Kafka, of course. Yeah, that's just an interesting question. Is there one more? I'll give it back to you, Tessa. But I I don't want to overstay welcome with you, John, but in only because. We are so anxious to find other opportunities to bring you into uh, kind of discussion with our, our students. Of course, one of our most distinguished PhD graduates, I should have said so at the very beginning, was Ben Peters, John Peters' son. And, and I will say this because I think it is a real testament to Ben, but also to the possibilities of our program, that Ben's book, How Not to Network a Nation on the Soviet Internet, won a prize not just for the best book in communications, not just for the best book in, let's say, history or sociology, but the best book on any field in Eastern European studies. Yeah. So that's just an astonishing 
I'm a very proud dad about that. That's really cool. It's virtually impossible for for scholars in the communications to to burst out that way, as yeah. has Julie, as has Julia Sonnevend, um, as has uh, several of our other um, Rasmus, Rasmus Nielsen also. Yeah, Rasmus Nielsen. That's right. Uh, with that wonderful book, winning a prize in political science. Yeah. For his book on political um, campaigning, yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry to be tooting the, you know, tooting the merits of our own students, but I did, I should have said something about um, Ben, whose whose digital keywords volume is um, is very much on our students' minds, PhD students, great working on it. Are there any more questions from anyone on the floor? Yes, Amel. Yes, I have one more question about this: the connection between theology and uh, communication studies and you talk very much about the divinities like it's always in the background in a lot of things that you write about but correct me if I'm wrong I think you've never written anything very um, uh, uh, direct about uh, God and uh, communication studies like, uh, like a scholar, maybe I'm wrong, but like a scholar would write about, I don't know, uh, the Bible as a book and um, its, I don't know, its impact, its role in communication studies or something like that. And, yeah. Maybe, I mean, I, I think when you talk about God, I'm, I'm a Kierkegaardian, it's best to do it indirectly. And Kierkegaard has this whole theory of, of indirect communication. But chapter seven of my of the marvelous clouds is called God and Google, and and which I talk explicitly um, about um, media theology. And did I just share a chat? I did. So th this is um th this is a short, silly little article in which um, I talk about a conversation that the late Roger Silverstone and I had about divvying up the field of media studies into its Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish wings. Yes, that I, I want to see. That is such a great topic. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's very brief, and it's obviously, you know, we should have had a Confucian wing and a, and a Muslim wing. The and Buddhist and, wing, yes. Buddhist wing, yeah. I mean, I think you can mean Zizek is probably the Buddhist wing. Or, mean, or the anti-Buddhist wing. I don't know. Forget that. I didn't say that. But the, the sort of um, neoliberal celebration of affect the Deleuze. Deleuze is, is, is the Buddhist wing. This probably I'm imagining Deleuze is not someone you hang around much with Richard, but no. <laughs> Correct. We have I have student questions from uh, two of these are Columbia undergraduates who are in my section of contemporary civilization, which is the happy summary, or at least that was how it was originally yeah. conceived. And I'm going to work a lot with that concept. But let's start with Sophia uh, Mickelson. Asked to unmute, and then Tiani Ding. I'm asking you to unmute, Sophia. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I just tried to click the button. Um, thank you so much for being here. My question is about um, the conversation that we were having earlier about museum space, and you made this um, distinguishment between exhibits that are more patronizing to the viewer and those that trust the viewer to interpret what they're seeing mm -hmm. um, and extrapolate their own truth from it. And I'm wondering how, what you think the role of um, bringing the viewer into the operational space of a museum is in that. Like, how do museums actually construct an, an exhibit that better or worse engages their viewer in, in the information they're presenting? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, as to actual, actual policy or practice, I don't really have 
have anything interesting to us say, but I do think that this question of curation is so interesting because, I mean, it's really what the whole book is about. Is curation legitimate? You know, we live in a world in which lots of voices say that any effort at curation from the left is either patronizing or reductive or exclusive, you know, um, ruling out certain kinds of voices and bodies, or for, or from the right is uh, elitist and snotty. I mean, it's a, it, that's that's the point of, of the book, is that structurally they're, they're very similar kinds of arguments. I mean, I mean, as a university teacher, I believe in curation. Um, you know, I design syllabi, and I think that that service, you know, that it's a service to help people, and that you know that education should involve some kinds of legitimate curation, and that so it, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it's such an interesting question because this interface between public and sort of elite knowledge is precisely where promiscuous knowledge happens. I mean, the question of a museum display. Voila, that's exactly promiscuous knowledge. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where all the trouble happens. And then Tiani? Um, yes, thank you for being here, Professor Peters. Uh, my question is about archival theory. Um, I wonder what do you think of archival theory and how it will be changing in the next, next couple of decades with the um, invention of like um, digital media, um, online libraries, and like online databases and how you think uh, archives or archival theories will still be important. Uh, will they be important in the same way as they were important before? Or there are new ways of emerging, new ways within um, the field of archival theory uh, mm -hmm. that emerges. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by archival theory, but when I think of archival theory, I think of like grand philosophical arguments like Jacques Derrida or Wolfgang Ernst. I mean, Ernst is much more historical, but really trying to think about how to, in a kind of post-Foucault way, how do we process the accumulation of of human knowledge? And yes, I, that's what I mean, uh, like a post-Foucauldian. Okay, great. So, I mean, I, I, I do think that the kind of sour and dour lessons of internet culture are going to shift a lot how we think um, about the archive because I think the sort of idea you know the sort of totalizing dream whether positive or sinister you know you know Foucault loves to play the sinister um, you know aspect of archives even as he's profiting enormously from looking at you know piles of paper equals piles of bodies that's basically you know Foucault's you know brutal um, equation that you know that that kind of awareness of of the gaps and the structures and the trouble of the archives will probably be much more prominent in our theorizing as we recognize the difficulty of curation, the difficulty of preservation, and and so on. That's just my op, off the top of the head. You sound like you've got better thoughts on this, though. So if you do, please. You want to say anything else, Tiani? If your your own background is in literary studies and in. Uh... And, and 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 in 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 social theory, anything more specific? Because it's a great question. Um, I'm this just came off my uh, came off like the top of my head. Um, I'm just wondering about like archives, um, especially like what you said last week in your office hours. Like, there are so many books in the museums, uh, in Butler Library, um, uh, but um. No one reads them. Yeah, the, the, point, the point I made uh, 
was that almanacs were by far the most widely read books in the 17th, 18th century um, in colonial America and early United States, along with the Bible. But very few almanacs have survived because they were actually read to death. And a lot of the books that ended up in Butler Library are books that, well, they're in perfect shape and they're uncut pages because guess what? Nobody ever read them. So there's often a, a disproportion between what yeah. survives and what was important. And of course, the idea of archival history really only dates back to 1880s and, you know, 1960. I mean, there's just a short period of time in which that was the kind of foundation for scholarship. And that seems very far from us right now. Um, so that was, I think that was the inspiration for it. The, this is a, Daniel Borston made this point that why study all the books in the library? Because nobody read them because that's why they're in the library. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I heard this really cool talk by uh, Claire Colebrook, who's a philosopher, liter literary critic at Penn state. And she was talking about all these dystopias um, in which humans have disappeared, but all this, all the libraries uh, remain behind unread. You know, there's, a, you know, the Burgess Meredith episode on, on the Twilight Zone is, you know, one classic example. And then uh, Colbrick pauses and says, wait, why is this a dystopia? This is exactly what we have. Yeah. Our libraries are full of stuff that nobody reads. I mean, we're already there in the post-apocalyptic world of, of unread books. Right. I mean, this gets to the broader question that our whole understanding of what history is or what the last, say, 30 to 40 years are is going to be very different because we have a different base of sources Absolutely. than we did for previous periods. And, and the medium then becomes, you know, a part, if not a large part of the message, what we're going to what historians or other scholars interested in, you know, temporal change are going to uh, are going to use are going to have access to. This is why I always I always say it of Harold Adams Innes, who's a yeah. hero of of uh, probably hopefully of all of us. Let's hope so. We did Innes. Uh, what was it last week? And I'm happy to have a Saturday morning where you go page by page through Innes. You know, he's my uh, he's my hero. Communication. Yeah. I, I always think of you know Innes's great discovery. I mean, part of his great discovery is that media have a history. Yeah. But the other half of it is that history has media. Yes. Maybe that's even the more radical uh, discovery that the history that we have radically depends upon the media by which it was recorded and transmitted right. and interpreted. That have you written on that, or is there? Yeah, a... yeah it's I... it's it's an essay called "History as a Communication Problem," and that's your essay or Innes's? No, it's my essay, but I I, I riff on Innes, and um, it's it's in a volume that. I think Barbie Zelizer and Josh Lauer edited. Do you, you remember this one? Communication yes. and history or communication. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's a good volume. Yeah, 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 it's in there. That is fascinating. Yes, we did. We did. I was trying. I'm very glad that. Oh, you was calling me. Can I just take my sure, phone? Sure, take your phone. Oh, sorry. Hi, Jerome. I, Tessa, I do want to bring this to an orderly um, conclusion, but is there one or two more? I just love talking I mean, it's like you're Hello? in the presence of a uh, j just just an extraordinary mind. Um, are there any couple more? Hi, Jerome? Yeah, he's got to worry about his painting. Are you here? And soon I've got to head down to campus to get the pizza for uh, Saturday afternoon office hours for the undergraduates or whoever else wants to come and have pizza. I'm going to have pizza, Hamilton 10, 12.30. 
Um, you're all welcome. You're all invited. Tiani, I know you're going to a movie because free movie beats free pizza, which is correct. <laughs> so you're back, John. Yeah. And um, back, but, the, yeah. Uh, the, the painter is here. He says, take my time, but I, I do have to go let, let him in and get Is the, there one final question maybe from someone who hasn't asked a question yet? Or uh, Ree is here. Um, I see. Um, yeah, Bernat is here. Will. Um, the undergraduates have been a little bit more... <laughs> Um, adventuresome in asking questions than the PhD students. Maybe we can get a question or two from the PhD students and then we'll close it up. I mean, the ones who I've just mentioned. Yeah. Is there a question coming up? I've got a statement. Good. Give us the statement. You all are very lucky to have Richard John as your professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's very generous, John. It's true. It's true. I mean, you did great stuff for for my son and you know he really appreciated and learned it learned a ton from you and you're always such a generous and uh informative colleague well that's very kind it's true very kind john um where we're, and i'm going to be drawing on this promiscuous knowledge concept because in my anti-monopoly project there are four monopolies monopolies of commerce monopolies of land or natural resources monopolies of industry and monopolies of knowledge yeah, yeah. That's that's where the twentieth. That's where I'm taking the twentieth century, okay. and this book fits so well. I had no idea how well it would fit into my own. So my, for my own selfish reasons, I'm very glad. I think it was Tessa we owe credit to, um, and also Ben, who are the regulars in this group, for, uh, for for getting this ball rolling and getting you it's to so come. Because you know this book was published in February or March of 2020. It landed. A total thud. It's the absolute worst time to publish a book. Right. Right. When we were all shutting down. Right. right. Have you gone on any book tours? Is there any, is there any? Um... Well, it's, it's, it's vanished. It's, it's, I've gotten one review. Yeah. Well, there's a project for some of our PhD students. We could get this, not that hard to do book reviews. We could get a, even a little forum on it. I think it really, dema- it really could stand a forum. Uh, with a number of different perspectives, because yeah. they're, they're. I'd love to read that. It has an architectonic quality to it. It is clearly demarcated, period to period, and that I I would well both of you, but I, I think Ken Italian Renaissance, the Scientific Revolution, and then early American Republic, and then the interwar period, and then the post. You know, it 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 tracks with uh, subjects that historians are, are and others, but I said time I'm a historian, are interested in. And yet it it really rearranges the deck chairs, um, especially for the interwar period, I will say. Um that and I'm glad you you agree. If you is there any other just substantive contribution, maybe this is how we'll end it, that you want us all to take away from this book or that you think is a contribution to communication media studies. And then maybe that'll be our last question. I'll let you take us out, John. Um, I don't know. The only, only thing, I, you know, we've, we've t- maybe the postscript just as a kind of meditation upon textuality, writing, yeah. knowledge, and friendship is something which is really a kind of postscript of speaking into the air also. You know, what does it mean to have a friend? What does it mean to, to communicate. I mean, that's, I, I think of the postscript as a kind of contribution in a sideways way to those questions. It is a wonderful postscript. And on that note, I think we're going to call this session to a close. Tessa, do you have any administrative or final remarks to make? 
My final remark is just thank you so much, everyone, for coming and Professor Peters for joining us. This was a real, real treat. It was a treat. It was just splendid. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. Great to be here. See you all. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. See you at 1230, those of you coming to Hamilton Tent. (laughs)